Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened in politics. I'm Arthur Delaney and I'm joined in studio by Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. Alexis, hello. Hello, good to be here. This week, Republicans in the U.S. Senate seemed like they were standing up to President Trump, but then they gave him a standing ovation and did a huge, huge favor for banks. And here's the backstory. In September, you may remember that the credit monitoring company Equifax got itself hacked and exposed the personal financial information of the entire adult U.S. population (laughs) to criminals. They did. This was a major scandal. It was. And in order to make it right, Equifax said, look, we know we totally screwed up in that Criminals now have your credit card and driver's license. Social security number. Right. What we're going to do to make this up to you is give you access to our free credit monitoring service, which they initially, you know, it wasn't even free, but they they got bullied into saying, okay, we won't ask for your credit card and uh, we'll make sure the criminals don't hurt you, even though we let them have your information. It turned out in the fine print, there was a clause that said, if you use this, you can't sue us. You can't join a class action lawsuit against us, which was very suspicious because they had seemingly created a lot of liability against themselves and people were really, really mad. This was a front page news story and it's something that actually happens all the time, right, Alexis Goldstein? It is. Uh, forced arbitration clauses, we like to call them rip-off clauses, are present in huge amounts of bank contracts. They're often present in cell phone contracts. And uh, 75% of people don't even know that they're there. But they basically, just by virtue of signing up for your cell phone or signing up for a bank account, um, you are likely signing away your right to take your company to court, uh, either by yourself or as a part of a class action, because the language of these forced arbitration clauses usually says you have to go through arbitration, you cannot join a class action, and the thing that's tricky about arbitration is you have to pay for it. The company typically gets to pay the equivalent of a judge. They, you know, the people that are arbitrators often want the company's business, so they tend to rule in favor of the company. So it's a really it's a stacked system of justice. Arbitration is Judge Judy for banks. Right. Where the judge is actually someone who works for the banks. Right. I mean, literally, Judge Judy is like... She is literally an arbitrator. It's an arbitration on TV. (laughs) But but this bank arbitration, it's not a court at all. It doesn't pretend to be a court. You can't appeal, and the results are secret usually. So you don't even... You can't, like, look up how people did generally. And this is what it says in the fine print of... Like any user agreement that you just scroll, 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 right. click OK. That's what it says in there. You can't sue us. You have to go to fake uh, bank judge Judy 
and <laughs> she works for us. And they're definitely not as nice and, and wise as Judge Judy. Let's just be clear. And crucially, about that. crucially, you can't do this collectively. This is you one-on-one right. going to arbitration against us. You don't band together in what is known as a class action. And the thing that's tricky about that is if your bank just rips you off for 15 bucks, you're not going to pay to go to arbitration. The benefit of a class action lawsuit is a thousand people got ripped off for $15. So let's get a lawyer who's going to help us while all band together and maybe we can get our $15 back. But if your bank is forcing you into this sort of secret process where you're going to have to pay just to get your 15 bucks back, you're not going to bother doing that. You're just going to give up. Here's why we're talking about that this week. You may remember that during the Obama years, uh, Elizabeth Warren became a sort of star consumer advocate and in response to the financial crisis that wrecked the economy and ruined millions of lives, the Congress created a new government agency called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was Elizabeth Warren's idea. And that bureau created a new regulation as a result of the Wall Street law that said, you can't ban people from signing up for class action lawsuits in these arbitration clauses in your contracts. It was just flat out banned by this rule. This rule was created late last year and was about to come into effect. It was actually in effect until this week. Um, they had released the final rule. It was in effect, and it, it only focused on financial companies. So cell phone companies could still do this, but your bank, your student loan servicer like Navient or Sally Mae, um, none of them were, were allowed to say you cannot join a class action against us until this week. Clarific- and Equifax is under that umbrella. They yeah. are they Equifax is one of three companies. They fancy themselves a quote-unquote bureau, but that's not what they are. They do underwriting for all financial firms. You know, who could do the underwriting themselves, but whatever, let's have a, a giant unaccountable middleman. So anyway, the rule came into effect this year, but this week, Congress said no. Get yes. rid of that rule. As if the whole national outrage over Equifax had not happened at all. Yeah. And and also, there was a big outrage about Wells Fargo. People might remember Wells Fargo created millions of fake accounts um, for people that never asked for them. And Wells Fargo also used forced arbitration clauses for people who tried to sue Wells Fargo over their fake accounts. Wells Fargo tried to say, well, you had a real account with us. You signed a forced arbitration clause with the real account, so you can't sue us about the fake account. So there are two big scandals, and Congress still said, you know what? I'm okay with these two big scandals. I still want to undo this rule. Right. The, the the damage from the Equifax one, actually, we don't know whose life has been compromised as a result of that. But the Wells Fargo one was more directly bad for the millions of people who had fake accounts created in their name, not by a by criminal right, organization, just by the bank itself. This was a, a disgrace. People lost their jobs at Wells Fargo. They haven't been prosecuted exactly, but they were hauled in front of Congress and castigated severely. Uh, mostly by Democrats, but also by Republicans. I mean, this was not uh, a question of, oh, well, liberals are mad at Wells Fargo. Everyone was mad at Wells Fargo. That's right. So Until... that's the, back, the background for what happened. Now, you know, you might have thought our politics was populist now. We had that election about the working man, about the forgotten factory employees, about global trade harming low-income Americans. And that that's what this is. This is banks – uh, global companies directly r- ripping people off and saying, you can't sue us. Yeah, and taking away our constitutional right to have access to the courts. Like, I, how do you get more American than that? Okay, so late at night on 
Wednesday, on Tuesday, the U.S. Senate voted on this resolution of disapproval that you know is a power Congress has to strike any regulation. So this was a regulation that you know squarely fits under the Congressional Review Act, and they voted party line. Well, actually, almost. They, they, they almost party line. They lost two Republicans, and they had to bring Mike Pence in to break the tie. Right. So it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion that Republicans would succeed. Right, because for a long time we had heard from Senator Kennedy of Louisiana that he didn't think that this was a good idea. He's on the banking committee, so when they talked about this in the banking committee, it was clear that Senator Kennedy didn't think this was a good idea. And then Senator Lindsey Graham also had been in the news talking about he didn't think we should overturn this rule. So it was sort of unclear. So it was clear that there were at least two Republican senators who thought this was a bad idea. It was unclear if there were more. So they voted no, but those aren't the traditional moderates at all. So people were looking at folks like Susan Collins, who had even given the impression that she might not support disapproving the rule, but wound up voting for it. And her statement in support of this is that arbitration is often better for consumers. It's simpler, cheaper, and faster than a class action. People often get more money as a result of arbitration. She said that uh, an arbitration could take less than seven months. Average award is $5,400. Whereas a class action could take two years and you'd get much less. So there's a really great report from the Economic Policy Institute, which uh, I'll tweet out after this podcast goes live. I'm at Alexis Goldstein on Twitter if you want to check that out. But basically that number that the typical consumer gets about $5,400 in arbitration is only looking at the customers who win when they take their bank to arbitration. Only 9% of people who try to fight their bank in arbitration win. So of that 9%, they usually get 5400 But everybody else loses. So if you, if you factor in the, what people lose and then have to pay their bank and average all of that together, the true number is the average consumer has to pay their bank $7,700. So that factoid from Collins is a little bit misleading. It, but the, the short version is usually people lose. <laughs> they wait, lose wait, wait. in when, arbitration. When you lose arbitration, you pay? Yeah. That you have sucks. to pay for their cost to going to arbitration. Now, you're, you're an expert on this. I, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable going – I would be going out on a limb to call that Colin statement totally dishonest. But the way you just arranged facts there made me wonder. Do you think that that was effectively lying, what she said? Uh, I – I think that, yeah, I think that that, that factor, well, it certainly only tells you one side of it. So it's certainly shady. Okay. It's not the full picture. Okay. So the uh, another reason this was a really resonant moment, I thought, was that it came on the day in which Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, the senators from Tennessee and Arizona who've been a little bit anti-Trumpy, really attacked the president with statements about what a disgrace he is and how he's debasing the United States. So there was this aura of resistance in the U.S. Senate, but but it, it seemed to switch back to plutocracy uh, very suddenly and late at night. It did, and even the visual of it was plutocracy, because if I watched the whole vote go down, Ben Sass and Tom Cotton were actually dressed in tuxedos while the vote was going down. Oh, so wow. here you had all of these senators voting to take away our right to sue our bank in a court and sue them in a class action. And meanwhile, two of the senators voting for that are dressed in these very crisp tuxedos with their little black but, uh, but to be fair, Alexis, they, weren't, they didn't have monocles and top hats. They didn't, but people have been photoshopping them onto them oh, in, okay. in the days since. <laughs> so th- the result of this will be that 
the CFPB can never reissue this regulation. The Congressional Review Act really kills it dead. Yeah, the Congressional Review Act, if people don't know, is the byproduct of Newt Gingrich, actually. We can thank Newt Gingrich for that. Contract with America. That's right. And it says that you can never do a substantially similar regulation, but that's never been tested in court. So we don't actually know what substantially similar means. So that'll have to work itself out if people, you know, sue in court and fight that. But I think the real answer here is to the, you know, if Democrats ever retake power in the House and the Senate, there's a number of legislation uh, a number of bills, including Senator Al Franken, has one um, that would basically restore these rights to Americans and make it such that these companies can't even have these kinds of forced arbitration clauses, that they have to give people a choice. Do you want to go to court or do you want to go to an ar- arbitration? All right. Alexis Goldstein, thanks so much for coming in. I forgot to mention at the top of this interview that you've got a great podcast called Humorless Queers. Yes, we try to make things that are very depressing a little bit funny. Humorlessqueers.com. Okay, Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll be right back. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague and our producer, Zach Young. Hey, Arthur. And on the phone, we've got former Congressman Reed Ribble, a Wisconsin Republican who retired after the last Congress, but not before getting in some real criticism of his party's nominee for president. Uh, Congressman Ribble, thanks so much for joining us. Arthur, long time no see. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, so this week we thought of you because a funny thing happened. There was some uh, really stinging criticism of President Trump from members of his own party, uh, namely Jeff Flake, the senator from Arizona, and Bob Corker, the senator from Tennessee. And what they were saying honestly sounded a lot like things you had said last year. For instance, uh, in one interview, I think in September 2016, you said, we actually need a grown-up, not a three-year-old, in the White House. Yeah, uh, maybe they should have joined me back in 2015. Um, But, you know, the interesting thing is they, they, they really are primarily critical of President Trump, uh, centered more around how he delivers his message, the tone, the constant attacks, um, you know, this deal with the tweeting about little L-I-B-B-L-E, Bob Corker. You know, those are the types of things that we saw in the campaign. Um, angry Republicans like that because it sounds like he's fighting for something, but, you know, it's just that the whole thing's just a little bit weird. 
uh, when you look at the policy that um, Senator Flake and Senator Corker have voted for, they're mostly in alignment with, with where the president is. And but they they feel that this uh, rhetoric has gotten um, so divisive that they can't move forward with their agenda, and that's a, that's a tragedy. Uh, well, we'll come to the agenda in a moment, but uh, you you just said something that, I, and I need to clarify. You criticized the president in 2015, uh, well before he was the nominee, but but he was still uh, winning at that time, and that's an important clarification because at that time you were a sitting member of Congress. You had not announced that you were retiring. You announced that you were retiring the following January. Is that correct? That, that that's right. I was uh, I, I wasn't planning on retiring, and then. Um, my my mother-in-law took ill, and we were concerned about taking care of her. She was in her 90s, and I hadn't seen my grandchildren. And you know, my wife and I, over Christmas time, just decided that our family needed to take some precedence in our lives. Um, and the the nature of the work in Washington D.C. was such that we couldn't do that. And so we pivoted back to spend more time with our family. And the unfortunate circumstance was that my mother-in-law actually passed away a few months later, in, in uh, early this year. And it was important for us to be there. I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, you you have been really clear about that. That the, the, this was for family reasons uh, all along. That that's what you've said. You know, some people for <laughs> when they say family reasons, it's it's for other reasons. But uh, this is an important distinction because you were criticizing Trump before you had announced retirement. A weird thing with Flake and Corker, and something that they've received a lot of criticism for this week is that they are retiring. So why does it seem as though someone has to? have announced retirement in order to criticize the, the president. Why don't they just stick around? Well, you know, I think I think that I have two different circumstances with Senator Corker. I think Senator Corker is uh, at an age and a, a point in his uh, professional career. You know, he had a, uh, a successful business in Tennessee and became governor, uh, I'm sorry, mayor of Chattanooga. Uh, he's been in, in politics for a very long time. And, I, and, and his age is such, you know, in his uh, later 60s where – He's just basically ready to retire, and I think that when he looked at all the circumstances uh, going on in his life, uh, he just felt it was the right time to step out. I think with Senator Flake, it's a little bit different. Um, he he readily admits that uh, his path forward to winning uh, a primary election, given the tone and tenor of uh, today's Republican politi- politics, that he didn't feel he had the opportunity to win. And, you know, campaigning is a big stressor on a family, on a marriage, on your uh, personal friendships and relationships. And uh, if you are if you don't feel that there's a path forward, why in the world would you put your family even through it? So I think he made a rational decision based on what he's seeing in the, in the ground uh, in Arizona. Congressman Grable, I was curious to talk to you because I've been thinking a lot this week, you know, with Jeff Flake and Bob Corker all over the news. You're you're a principled Republican in Congress right now, and you want to take a stand against what this president is saying and doing. What do you do? Because obviously, the most popular path of sort of silent acquiescence obviously doesn't cut it. But something about Jeff Flake's approach of finally speaking the clear truth and then kind of dropping the mic and backing off the political stage somehow doesn't feel adequate either. Is there another way you can go? I, I don't know that there is. But to be honest with you, I think it's a difficult circumstance because. Um, the, the, there's an element of the Republican Party right now that is just what I call the angry right. They're just mad about everything. And so they're always looking for a scapegoat. And so if you were to take the, the posture that Jeff Flake took, or Senator Flake took, excuse me, um, uh, with his force speech that I thought was quite magnificent, uh, where he actually said, listen, this is wrong, and, and 
I've got children and grandchildren, and they're going to be looking back at this moment in history and wondering what I did. Um, and so he decided to make that stand. I think there are others that are doing that privately and and maybe in a in a less intrusive manner because we still have to recognize that the that President Trump is the president of the United States. Uh, he was duly elected by the voters. He won his uh, his election uh, last year. And so to the, to a certain degree, you want to uh, work in a way that you can advance uh, the agendas that you believe in. And if you just become an outlier, um, you become almost irrelevant to your citizens back home. And so it's a, you've got to really thread the needle uh, with this because uh, there, there's not a lot of broad disagreement with President Trump on policy. i got plenty. I, I think he's wrong on trade. I think he's wrong on immigration. And I think those are significant things. Uh, that are, are that align more with traditional conservatism than uh, where President Trump is. But uh, for the bulk of the policy, he's going to have pretty broad agreement with Republicans, and I think the voting records reflect that. Well, here's a, a question, and, and perhaps it applies more to Flake's situation than Bob Corker's, but he's he's by simultaneously announcing retirement and launching this withering criticism of the president – that retirement announcement allows the president to say, well, he's just a loser. He's just a sore loser. And so that's the only reason – Nothing stops him from saying that though. Well, yeah. He'd say that anyway. But but this – the president and his allies also make this argument that this is just a sour grapes guy. Uh, why not just defer the retirement announcement or even better, why not just try to run for office as somebody who is uh, explicitly against – what President Trump is trying to do, you know, you're losing in the polls. Maybe that would be uh, a different strategy. I, I don't know. Maybe that sounds very naive. Uh, uh, former Congressman, you 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 know this stuff. Yeah, I, I would I would hate to call anybody naive. That just goes down the wrong road. I just think that it, for people that have never run for office, um, there's not a, a an adequate awareness of of the difficulty um, of raising the necessary funds, of being out in the public eye. Of, of all the Saturdays and Sundays and parades you've got to be in and walk in and every single meeting you've got to be at. And if uh, if you feel that it's just going to be, in essence, a losing cause because the Republican Party itself has changed, fundamentally changed, then it's not a matter of walking away from the fight. It's a matter of recognizing reality and then accepting uh, where things are at. And, you know, politics is cyclical. And in five years, ten years from now, when, when history reports on this time period, uh, there will be a different Republican Party emerging, just like there will be a different Democratic Party emerging. Um, and so I think uh, sometimes it's not necessarily the most prudent thing to do to just stick in there and fight it out. Um, you're better able to be totally candid when they're in the position they're in, and that's the choice that they're making. Uh, in a piece for – I think it was for the Washington Post this week, Jeff Flake compared this moment to Joseph Welch's famous confrontation with Joseph McCarthy in 1954. That was the, the – at long last, sir, have you no decency? And at first I thought, well, that's a little self-aggrandizing, isn't it? But then I thought, wait a minute. This time we're actually talking about the president, so maybe it's not really. What do you think of that comparison? I, I don't think it's self-aggrandizing. I think, I think he's drawing a parallel of what – what he's going through in his personal life and his own personal experience. You know, there were some of us that, that were really bothered by the, um, by the rhetoric, by the tone, by the, uh, di- divisiveness, the divisive nature of it, uh, by what we saw happen in Charlottesville, where we felt we needed a, a stronger statement about 
about unity, civility, um, the, a harsh condemnation of racism and anti-Semitism. And those things just aren't coming uh, and certainly didn't come fast enough for, for many of us. And so I think that there's this disconnect there where um, you just feel that you do have to say something at some point. And I think for, for Senator Flake, he finally arrived at that moment. Back to the question of continuing to run. I mean, I get that there is a really intricate and elaborate apparatus of uh, fundraisers and campaign staffers and donors that you sort of need all working together. And so I, I see how uh, suddenly turning on a dime and, and running as someone who is taking a stand against the president is not what that apparatus is set up for. But wouldn't that be mavericky? And isn't that maverick quality like supposedly the the what you know what are the most ideal brands that a politician can have? Well, sure. I mean, it, yes, it, it is. Um, however, both of these uh, folks, uh, Senator Corker and Flake, have been in the Congress a very long time, and so I think that there's uh, there's also a, a pretty solid pragmatism and, and reality of, of the, the emerging tribalism uh, that we're seeing in American politics today, you know, where it's more about supporting the tribe as opposed to supporting a particular principle or cause. And um, I think that that's a frustration to, to many people. And, and all this nonsense about the GOP uh, establishment, there is no such thing as a GOP establishment. The, the GOP is the collective crowd of voters who decide to go to the polls and and uh, check off the box for the candidate with an R before their name. That is the establishment. And and so it, it, it is not this us versus them so much as it is, I think, the senators have uh, come to a real realization that that people are now voting specifically just for the R or the D without the consequence of understanding what R and D actually has meant historically. And I think they're frustrated by it. The Republican agenda right now is on the march with this push for tax reform clearing a, cle- a key procedural hurdle in the House and Senate. And how does that look? I mean, it, it's it's it brings together people who are against Trump and people who are for Trump. It, it seems as though the flake retirement is almost a, a distraction, like it's inconsequential in the scheme of policy, which is, of course, the entire point of having a Congress. Well, it, it is, and um, you know, I've, I've heard repeatedly and read repeatedly uh, in, in reports that tax reform is the thing that unifies Republicans. But we're about to find out. You know, um, they the House representatives passed their budget today, actually acquiesced to the Senate budget, which blows up the deficit um, by a very narrow margin, two sixteen to two twelve. And so, yeah. it certainly it doesn't appear to be all that unifying. Um, and when they get into the, the minutia, now remember, no one, no members of the House have seen the legislative language. They've seen like a one-page report on it. And, and, and these House members have not had an opportunity to even weigh in on this. And you're starting to see the, um, the arguments being, uh, given, um, well, we gotta, we've gotta keep the state in local tax deduction, where others are saying, no, why should a low tax state have to subsidize a high tax state? And, there's going to be a lot of fighting. If you think uh, of, of repealing Obamacare or stuff, tax reform is much harder. 
Uh, all right, Congressman, uh, former Congressman Reed Ribble, thank you so much for calling in. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, bye bye. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by my colleague Igor Bobic. Hey, hey. And editor of the Pre- uh, Meet the Press, SV Date. <laughs> Hello, Arthur. <laughs> Thank you for being here. So, on Thursday, the House of Representatives cleared a very important procedural hurdle for tax reform. And SV and I have been really fighting over whether they will ultimately succeed on tax reform or fail. I say they'll fail. SV says they'll do something. So Thursday's vote really punches me in the face. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, House of Representatives. But I still think they will fail because it was a procedural vote. They have a tax framework, but they still don't have a tax legislation. SV, they're going to draft it next week, they say, or you know, release their draft. You think that they will succeed still? In releasing the draft, absolutely. Yeah, that's a done deal, man. That's going to happen. That was really smart, yeah. Alecky. Right. You know no, what I mean, man. Are they going to pass something? Of course they're going to pass something. Republicans love cutting taxes. Now they have the ability to do it with 51 votes. And uh, who is going to say no in that caucus to uh, cutting people's taxes in an election year? I, I just don't see why this is a mystery. Well, do you remember what happened in March? When the House of Representatives approved their Obamacare repeal bill, and they had a big party at the White House, I do. And uh, you know what happened after that? Did, did Obamacare get <laughs> well, repealed? I, here's what I will say: is one one way, just one way. This is different from Obamacare. Is that during Obamacare you had a tangible benefit that people had insurance. You had sick people. You had people with disabilities up on the hill lobbying against it. This is this is more. Uh, Mercurial, I would say, of a of a fight. Um, this is something you know you you see taken out of your paycheck at the end of every year. So uh, it's it's um, it's easier for them to fudge the numbers and and kind of move this along than than healthcare was. You're right in one sense, but wrong in another, which <laughs> oh. is that there are a lot of tangible benefits benefits that, in fact, the Republican tax plan does take away. They do portray it as just a cut for everybody, but that's not what it is. Even though it adds like two trillion dollars to the deficit, which you know supposedly is contrary to conservative, a uh, fiscal conservative. <laughs> well, we don't we don't care about that anymore. Right? They, they, they st- never did. They st- well, Let's just it's clarify. Not, they it's never not, did. It's not that they totally don't. They're a little shy about it, and for <laughs> that reason, they offset the massive corporate tax cuts in their plan with a giant tax hike on a lot of middle and upper class taxpayers through their simplification, which includes taking away all these deductions and exemptions. And these are things that are often caricatured as giveaways to the rich, but that vast numbers of lower-income people benefit from. So that's why they can't even say at this point that everyone gets a cut under their plan. You have to ask them if everyone would get a cut. And when they don't feel like lying, they admit that <laughs> they won't. So I, I think that's that's going to be their insurmountable problem. Ultimately, a good... 16 or so of them voted no on the budget Thursday. And it was the ones from 
high-tax, high-income blue states like New York and New Jersey. And I was on the Hill listening to these guys on Tuesday. And they were like, I can't deal with losing the state and local tax deduction. Right. So then they'll remove that. And then problem solved. And then those votes come back. You keep talking as if, one, you use that word reform, which is a fraud, because they're not going to pass any reform. They're going to pass tax cuts. And that makes it very easy. I mean, I'm with Igor. I mean, this is this this is the easiest thing for any legislative body to do is cut taxes. It's a lot easier for Congress to do it because we can run a, a deficit and long-term debt. States can't do that. Counties can't do that. Cities can do that. These people can, and they will, and they have been doing it since 1960. Kennedy's tax cuts did not pay for themselves. They added to the deficit, and they started doing that, and we've never gotten off that track. So they could just give back the state and local tax deduction, but that's going to mean their plan costs an additional trillion dollars. Oh, come on, don't be silly. The economy is going to take off like a rocket. There's going to be rocket <laughs> fuel. I think the president has said this. And there's going to be so much winning, so much money coming. Like, come on, like they cared. They don't believe they it in their hearts. The George W. Bush tax cuts have added like I'm, $3 trillion to the long term debt. Well, I, quite frankly, I'm still surprised they're thinking about touching 401ks, retirement accounts. This was not in the plan, but this came out uh, last week after Democrats complained. It was that they were would limit the amount of uh, pay that workers could put in a 401k instead of uh, taking it home. So the limit is like 18000 18, and they want to bring it down to less than 3000 <laughs> Which, to be honest with you, uh, an average worker does not put in 18000 into their retirement account the, but per year. I, I, you're right that the politics of that are shocking. Like you're right. not going to let people save for right. retirement. Yeah. It's easy, easily you – know, you're going to see some ad next year that's like, Congressman X voted to take away your retirement. I'm so yeah, and, glad. And in fairness, that that would change it to a system where whatever you put in pre uh, pre tax, you don't have to pay taxes on when you take it out later. So it basically becomes like a Roth IRA. I'm so glad you mentioned this, though, because why on earth would they do something that looks so politically awful? Because they're shy. They're <laughs> shy about their deficit. They're not completely embarrassed. But they're a little shy and they know they need to offset some of the deficit impact and they're so desperate to do it. They are even looking into not letting people save for retirement or at least opening themselves to that political attack. And that's the same thing with state and local. They aren't just going to put it back. They are going to look for offsets. Why do you make these predictions like this? I'm not making a prediction. (laughs) I was on the Hill. I talked to Tom MacArthur and other New York, New Jersey Republicans who are saying- They don't even know what they're going to do in a month. Well, they got this thing passed today because what Kevin Brady, their top tax man, is saying is, we're going to make a deal with you guys and we'll allow some deductibility of these state and local taxes, but we're going to offset that cost. And the question is, what are the offsets? It could be things like the 401ks, it could be keeping the estate tax partially, it could be any number of seemingly harsh things, but that's what they're considering. I think it's a testament to how difficult this is going to be for Why them. are you talking to those people? Go talk to the people on the Senate side, right? And on December the 18th, in the middle of the night, they'll pass their tax cut bill. It won't be as big as this, it won't have these offsets, and they'll send it to the House and saying, Take it or leave it. We're going home. Goodbye. And what do you think the House will do? There are Senate Republicans who are uncomfortable with repealing the estate tax. Just out, they're just saying that already. 
they're not even being forced into that by the complicated math of the plan. They're, you're basically you can do whatever you want. You're playing in a sandbox now with how you want your theoretical tax plans to look. And they're already complaining about the politics of repealing a tax that applies to the richest 0.2% of tax filers. This is Susan Collins and one or two others I'm talking about. So I think that they have uh, barely begun to reckon with the political trouble they're, they're about to have. That's actually a really great tax to keep alive because then you can keep raising money off of it in the future, saying, we're going to get rid of this death tax once and for all. And if you get rid of it, then what do you do? Oh, you mean what can- these campaign contributions? Exactly, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a total donor class tax because you, you know, it only applies to estates worth more than five and a yeah, half million dollars. that'd be insane million to that. I mean, well, they keep saying it, it crushes all these farmers and small businesses. Which a, lot, is, a lot of farmers out there. Yeah, which is are. just like not true at all. <laughs> yeah. I went to the Hill to like, oh, I'm really going to argue with these guys. You know, they don't, they don't have the data on their side. And I was shocked that they said, actually, we don't know if we're even going to keep the estate tax because that's how messed up their plan is. <laughs> that's how different the politics is from the framework that they've released. So yeah. I think they'll struggle. I mean, I, I think as, as difficult as the calculus is going to be on the House side, it's probably going to be even tougher on the Senate side, um, given that you've got several Republicans coming out now. You know, criticizing Trump about things he said and done, um, and uh, you've got people like Bob Corker who have who have said um, for months now that you know they're worried about what this will actually do to the deficit. Now that he's retiring, um, this puts his vote in play, um, and they, as you know, they need every vote there. Yeah, Bob Cor- like it's it's great that you brought up Bob Corker because his latest tiff with Trump was actually triggered by. The tax politics, because Trump had saw a New York Times story about the 401k thing. And so instead of talking to anybody, I guess, he went on Twitter and said, no way are we doing that. <laughs> and Kevin Brady and all these other guys like, oh, Jesus, man, talk to us. And so Bob Corker went on TV and complained, you know, I really wish the president wouldn't take stuff off the table. And that's what precipitated all these tweets calling him short and unable to little, win. Little, a, little, 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 Bob. Little with an apostrophe that I still can't figure out. Right, said he couldn't get elected. Doc Ash. That was because of taxes. And so then Kevin Brady on the House side said, you know what, we really are going to keep that 401k thing. He's not really like listening to the president. <laughs> I think it's going to be a problem. It's, it's a really genius uh, strategy. This dealmaker um, expert just keeps antagonizing these people who he's going to need. It doesn't matter, guys. Well, I mean, Republican, no matter who the Republican president was going to be, they were going to cut taxes. I mean, Donald Trump could be the dog catcher and it wouldn't matter. They would cut taxes. And Donald Trump will sign it and claim, regardless of its size, that it's the biggest one in history. The flip side of this that I wonder about is if, say, they do pass something, do they do they then start really giving Trump the finger? Like this is the only <laughs> thing they really need him for, uh, other than a Supreme Court justice. They already got one. If they get tax reform, do you think that that would change the way politics looks with more Republicans being unwilling to put up with his crap? Well, they don't need to give him the finger. They could just ignore him more, which, as Igor pointed out, they're already starting to do. They'll just do it more. And then what's he going to do? Tweet at them angrily? I mean, come on. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul Ryan's finally going to start reading tweets and paying attention to, to what he what he says. So Paul Ryan will come out and say, "I really didn't like that," <laughs> instead yeah. of saying, "I didn't see it." Uh, well, they'll do what they do in a normal election year, which is nothing. They'll just come here and they'll have committee meetings. They'll, they'll raise money and then they'll you know run for re-election. That's a normal re-election year on the Hill, right? Nothing, nothing. Igor, SV, thank you. Been my pleasure. Thanks. 
So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week, we were joined by former Congressman Reed Ribble, senior policy analyst at Americans for Financial Reform, Alexis Goldstein, and by HuffPost reporters S.V. Date, Igor Bobic, and Zach Young. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.